Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, team. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jackie. I don't know what other churches do. We've got such cool MCs. I just love them. You know, it's like... <laughs> Um, thank you. And then, just to say, uh, Lloyd, Jackie shared a little bit earlier, but we've been praying for you, bro, as you say goodbye to your dad and process that. And yeah, enter into the kind of sorrow that heals. And uh, yeah, that's that's a work. And uh, and then we also know Jenny. We're praying for you. Jenny's stepmom was tragically killed lunchtime yesterday uh, in a car accident, a uh, road accident. And so, uh, yeah, we're just praying for you and your family. Uh, we know she loved the Lord. We know she prayed for you. Uh, and Lloyd, you had the same legacy. Um, but still, there's the grieving in the morning. And uh, we're with you in that. Thank you. So we continue in our lead up to Easter and the series, the short series that uh, Kirk and Nate kicked off. Uh, yeah. Which is why we believe. You know, why do I believe? Now you know the answer, right? The answer when you come to church is always Jesus. Jesus! And it wasn't a true question, okay? <laughs> why we believe. I believe because of the extraordinary historical critical evidence, the testimony about this man who lived 2,000 years ago, lived a beautiful and remarkable life, died a brutal and unimaginable death, and according to historical evidence was resurrected to new and indestructible life. And I believe because of the meaning his own words attached to those witnessed events. And so at the very heart of our faith lies the weight of his words that add meaning to his story. And if you ask me why I believe it always goes back to Jesus. It just does. I don't know how to get around him. And I'm glad I don't have to. Because Jesus is described in Scripture as a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes people fall. You either build your life against him or you break your life against him. I mean, you build your life on him or you break your life against him. But he is there as a kind of testimony from Scripture. So I want to look at an example of one of those stories to which Jesus adds the meaning of faith. And it is on Palm Sunday, of course, a reading about the triumphal entry. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. So from Luke 19 and verse 28. Now, uh, Annie just led us through prayer through a tiny few verses in this whole reading. And there's just so much inside it. I'm going to pick on one or two key thoughts rather than unpack the whole thing. But let's take the reading because it is significant. Luke 19 verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. 
those who were sent went ahead and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked him, hey, I mean, this is the owners. So he hadn't arranged this, you know. <laughs> it's like affirmative shopping, yeah. Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. <laughs> like, you know, what do you say in that moment, you know? And so they brought it to Jesus. It was just like, boom, like that. I mean, it's just a remarkable little... I mean, why would that be added to the story if it didn't happen? It's just a, it's just a remarkable little detail. And, and so they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. In fact, we read in the other Gospels, they began to climb the palm trees and cut off the palm branches and the children were running, waving palm branches, throwing them on the ground. People began to take off their cloaks and in a sign of honor and submission, they weren't just putting them on the donkey. They were literally laying them on the road as if to say, your donkey can ride over my back. Um, your, your, your rule, your reign, this is like a recognition of uh, an, an enactment that people would have understood. This is like super royalty coming into town. And so they spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for the miracles they had seen. Right. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. And as he approached the city, Jesus began to weep. So why we believe? We're going to look at this on uh, Good Friday again with a different focus and on Easter Sunday. But today I want to talk about the fact that we believe because we can't live without meaning and purpose. So the setting, number one, is Jesus has been doing ministry for about three years. We'll see it again in, uh, as we go. But everyone understood that Jesus had generated multiple credible eyewitness accounts of stunning miracles. So people are beginning to celebrate crowds and crowds. And there's just it's just known everywhere. Jesus has done these remarkable, crazy, mind-blowing, astonishing miracles whether he's feeding the crowds or raising the dead or healing the sick or setting people free who are absolutely trapped in darkness, not even his most hostile opponents could refute the evidence that just followed him. And so this generated huge expectations, not least in the military sense. You see, the Jews were living under a Putin-like peace. It was brutal. It was called the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And this peace was basically under the boot of a Roman soldier and a Roman empire. 
And they were longing for a commander in the mold of a Moses or a Samson or a David who could come and lift that boot and throw off that yoke and give them their freedom again. They wanted to overthrow the oppressor. Now imagine the possibilities if you got a commander who could feed the multitudes without a logistical nightmare. Like he could literally just make food from a handful of loaves and a couple of fishes. And you got a commander who could heal the sick. No, no medical tent required. And you got a commander who could raise the dead like he had just done for Lazarus. No fear needed. These people are beginning to think God has come. And the one who maybe split the sea and drowned Pharaoh and the one who overthrew all the gods of Egypt, he's coming back to save us. The God who raised up a David, the God who is able to raise up a a human rescuer for us is coming back to save us. And this time, nobody's going to stop us. This is the Savior. This is the kind of Savior we've been hoping for. So there's this extraordinary entrance into Jerusalem in which this crowd, and why do I put those thoughts into the crowd? Because within literally a week, they'd be shouting, crucify him when he did not fulfill their expectations. So there's an irony, number two. First is the setting. Number two is the irony. This conquering king, and they call him king all throughout, and this is a kingdom passage, by the way, isn't riding a stallion. There's no prancing white or black horse. He has no army. He's got a ragtag bunch. He's got no weapons. He's not doing what the conquerors of the day would do, which they'd ride into the cities and they'd scatter all the money and stuff that they'd got to gather a claim. And he isn't cheering and he isn't shouting. In fact, by the end of his triumph, he is weeping. And he's saying, if only you knew. If only you knew who was coming to you today. If only you knew. It's such a deep irony. And Matthew, who's of course the gospel writer who's very concerned to show the rootedness in the ideas of the Old Testament, shows us how this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 9. This is, uh, took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you. Your king comes to you. Gentle. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. Such irony. Huge expectations in the context. And make no mistake, Jesus is being proclaimed as king, the designated, anointed ruler, the titles. For example, Hosanna to the son of David. It's the Aramaic word, save us. Hosanna is a cry, save me. Son of David, recognizing the royal anointing lineage and right to rule. 
He is the fulfillment of the messianic promise. He is the savior of God's people, but he's not going to do what they want him to. He will save, but not, what they, not the way they think. And they're hoping that somehow as he enters humil- uh, Jerusalem, that he's going to throw off this, this disguise of humility. And maybe make a, a little tweak to his message up until now, which has enabled him to go below the radar. See, all Jesus needed to say is you don't have to love everyone. You just have to love the people who are like you. You still need to love, but just just love the people who agree with you. That's all Jesus needed to say. And then they had every reason to rise up against the people that they didn't love. All Jesus needed to say is you don't need to love your enemies. That's all he needed to say. Jesus, you can still preach love just on our terms. But he stays on the donkey and he weeps and he hopes that they can see who has come to them. He says, you didn't understand, you didn't discern the timing of God's coming to you. See, he knows he's more than you. This remarkable man, why we believe, is because there's something in this man that makes us realize he's more than a man. And by Easter, Good Friday, we'll see a man who says, surely this man is the Son of God. See, they didn't know. But we see in this remarkable story that creation knows its king. Creation knows its king, number three. So there's this remarkable exchange as some of the Pharisees want him to rebuke the people. Essentially, they want him to say, stop it. <laughs> they got their own reasons. <laughs> and Jesus essentially says this, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, it's clearly a metaphor. And what does it mean? Now, many suggestions have been made. One of which is... Uh, that if Jesus shuts this down, the celebration would turn into a riot. In other words, the rocks would speak, as in the people would take up the rocks and start throwing it at the authorities, and we would have a betuching. We would have a protest. Now, I'm not going to tell you which theological school that comes from, but that's apparently one of the... Jesus, in a sense, saying, don't mess with us, guys. You, you know, We've got the stones. The stones will talk. I don't think that's what it means, by the way. (laughs) Partly, and this is certainly in it, when you meet Jesus, praise is appropriate. It should not be suppressed. It should not. Why should I silence the people who are recognizing at least something of who I am, even if they don't understand all its expectations? Praise is appropriate. It should not be suppressed. Can I have a hallelujah from all the worship leaders in the congregation? This is like one of their favorite, you know. And I mean, I just asked them, they said, like, the rocks cry. You know, it's like, oh, man, let's silence the rocks. Come on, everybody. Let me hear you, man. If you keep quiet, you know, you don't want that people to outdo you. Come on, everybody. Let me, you know. Worship leaders' favorite meaning. Um. 
But I think there's a deeper meaning here, is creation knows its king. There's something in the DNA of creation itself that is waiting to cry out. And as long as the world is in bondage, it groans. But creation is going to celebrate when we are seen for who Jesus has made us to be. Romans chapter 8. But creation itself has in its very being and essence a voice that bears witness to its maker. And Jesus is saying more than just, listen, people will get upset or don't silence them. He is claiming to be the one who is Lord of the rocks. This king, this savior is not just a Moses. This savior is not just David. This savior is not just Samson. This savior is the one who is Lord and master of all creation. Our God has come. But the fourth thing we see is that he does not stop salvation's story. One of the most obvious things of the significance of his reply, whatever its meaning and detail is, you can't miss this. I'm not going to stop this. Nothing is going to stop salvation's story. He's not going to turn back. At several points in his life, Jesus' family come to him and they urge him to turn away from this path because they can see it's going to go to a cross. And Jesus warns his own disciples this is going to happen. And Peter says, never, Lord. And they don't want him to go to Jerusalem. They want him to turn back and turn away. And now when this thing is starting to play out and it seems almost irreversible, this is one of the last opportunities and the Pharisees don't know who they are agreeing with, but they are actually saying, stop it. And Jesus says, salvation's story is unstoppable. I have a purpose, I have a calling, I have a destiny, and I am going to go into Jerusalem to fulfill all that my Father has planned and purposed. He will not turn back. Even knowing that in a few days it would lead to Good Friday, it would lead to a cross, Jesus refuses to stop the story. He won't turn back. Why? Number five, Jesus knows the meaning of living with purpose. He knows the meaning of dying with purpose. See, one of the most significant things we can do, and this is my last point, is we can learn to see the world the way Jesus did. One of the most significant things we can do is we can learn to see the world the way Jesus did. And so, for example, Jesus saw life as a temporary assignment of eternal significance. Need that again? Jesus saw life, this life, this time that we get given on the earth as a temporary assignment of eternal significance and consequence. And he would say things like, what good is it if you gain the whole world, yet you lose your soul, that thing that will transcend 
the season that you have on this life. And because he found such meaning in life, he actually found a meaning that also transcended death. Went beyond the inevitability of death. Now, can I ask for your concentration and attention? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us a little bit into this, the field of philosophy, okay? Now, don't roll your eyes or whatever. We're going to do it in a way that you're going to get it, okay? And if we don't, I don't know, blame me. Okay. I want to tell you why this is important before we start. Because what I'm about to tell you shapes the way you see the world, even if you don't agree with, uh, even if you don't yet say it like that. It's literally in the atmosphere that we live around. It's all over. It's in the mindsets of people. It shapes the way we think and decide. It shapes what you do when you get up first thing in the morning, and it shapes what you do throughout. And, and, and these ideas are so fundamental. Why? Because they have to do with finding meaning and purpose in life. Jesus had a meaning and purpose to live for. And we're going to do well to find that meaning and purpose. You see, since ancient times, people have wrestled with the great problem of meaning. Humankind sort of like developed its collective consciousness by going, hey, we're on the world. Like we're on the earth. We're, we're here. Like we know we didn't start it ourselves. Uh, we started a whole lot of other stuff, but we know we didn't start this. We, we, we have this innate sense that our existence is just there. Now, how the heck do you make meaning of finding yourself there? And as you're born, you're not yet conscious of it. And slowly, you become aware of your there-ness, your existence. And the ancients, I mean, we didn't work this out last week. The ancients struggled with this question deeply. The world was taken as a given, a fact you could not explain. It certainly wasn't that everyone back then were, you know, ignorant Philistines and believed in creation. That wasn't a given. And certainly not in creation by a personal and loving God. And so this led to two ways of seeing the world. First was, back then, life was seen as a random accident. I could give you all the fancy philosophical names. I'm going to avoid that. But essentially, it's a random accident. It has no meaning. It's random. It, it was a fluke. It was a chance. Stuff just happened. And whether you, you, know, you want to put that in Darwin's language of evolution or whatever, these guys didn't use Darwin's language. They just recognized that they, it could have just happened. And so many people look at their life and they were saying, well, it just happened. I didn't choose it. I didn't start it. It just happened. And it has no meaning or purpose. You simply find as much temporary meaning and purpose as you can, and then you die. You see, they didn't see life as a temporary assignment of eternal significance. They saw life as all it is. And so life becomes completely random. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes, for example, when it talks about life under the sun, literally just your existence on the earth, 
is going, it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. It's random. Or, second belief that they tossed between was life is fated. The universe is a giant predetermined machine. And it's just going to roll its cogs and you're a tiny little cog in the great big world of fate. And it doesn't really matter what you do or don't do or choose. In fact, one of the best things you can do is learn to suck it up. And they call that stoicism. And, 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 and essentially... Because you were just a cog in the great machine, you had no real choices. And whether the machine was biological or sociological or behavioral or, or, or um, theological, basically the belief was that, that you simply rolled onto the stage to play the part written by an unknown author or playwright and then you disappeared. And the script was written long before you came, and the script will carry on long after you came, and you're just breath. Eugene Peterson says, spit in the wind. You know? That's how quick it goes. You still have no meaning. You have no purpose. You have no choices. Even falling in love. It's just fiction. It's purely apparent. You were pre-programmed to do that. And into this world steps Jesus with a Jewish worldview. And he believes Genesis 1 and every other chapter that follows. And he understands that we have been created. And that creation has something within it that innately responds to its creator. And he says, eternity has been set into the hearts of men. Again, Ecclesiastes. And so there's this staggering belief that we have been made by a personal and loving God. That creation itself, even the rocks, is meant to know and praise its creator Literally, can I say to you, do you believe you've been made by God for God? And that even if you've fallen and messed it up, God's original verdict over your life is still the same today as when he first made us in Genesis 1 verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, including us, and he said, it is very good. You're not random. You're not an accident. You're not part of an inevitable machine. You're at the heart of a personal moral God who has made you to become like him with personal moral choice. Why do I believe? Just getting the plane onto the final thing before we land the sermon. Just honestly... And, and this was before me, with me before I became a Christian. I couldn't believe that I was an accident. I couldn't believe that nothing mattered. That I had no meaning. Nothing worth living for. 
And I couldn't believe that I was a predetermined machine, that my choices are just cruel fiction, and that everything is just grinding its way out. And then there's a post-Christian view that has since come, which is, likes the consequence of those two things being thrown out the window. And so it gives you a third option today, which says, well, why don't you become your own creator? Well, I can't believe that I have the power to be my own creator. You see, there's a flaw in the logic. Sartre said that if life is random or an accident, and that's pretty much what he believed, then you have to find meaning in the moment. It's called existentialism. Your existence is the reason that you find meaning. And you need to find it in every single moment. And so people are going through life hoping to find meaning and something worth living for, and maybe even something. No, there's nothing. If existentialism is true, there's nothing worth dying for. So live for the moment. Just do it. Create your own meaning. Create your own purpose. Become your own creator. Now, very quickly, the problem with this modern view is it's disappointingly predictable as to the meanings that we resort to. Meanings of achievement and success. We find meaning through money or power and the control of things or people. But wait a minute, controlling people and things is not really politically correct. It sounds like Putin. So today in the liberal West, we are told to find meaning in relationships and with the rest of creation in loving people generally, in romantic love, in friendship. But the truth of it is, is either we disappoint people and die, or they disappoint us and die. And we have nothing that transcends the inevitability of death. Or more recently, we've been told to find meaning by connecting with the rocks, with the inanimate creation. Love the rocks, the trees, the rivers, the streams. Now, this is created by God, and it's good. I'm not knocking... Uh, earth awareness. But if that's where in your interrelationships with things, people are being told, it's in there that you will find your meaning. Question. Why should that matter if you're still going to die? Thank you. Bless you. Atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche poured scorn like utter scorn, even more than a hundred years ago, on the wishful modern idea that we can make a meaningful middle out of a meaningless beginning and a meaningless end. You want that again? Atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, you cannot make a meaningful middle out of a meaningless beginning and a meaningless end. We want to be our own meaning creators. And then there's an even more fundamental problem. Is if I am to be my own creator, to create my own meaning, then I must create my own truth. Truth is not something given or discovered or treasured, priceless beyond words. 
Now listen to me. You might be here as a seeker. You're not yet sure what to think of Jesus, but you're willing to explore. Or you might be here for some other reason and you're quite sure you don't believe in Jesus. Or you have put your faith in Jesus and you live in a world where you want to know him and follow him. But you're living in a world where people are choosing their own meaning, their own purpose and their own truth. In fact, they no longer talk about the truth. We talk about my truth. Welcome to the postmodern world. I want you to consider this. Right now, we are seeing the devastating political, social consequences, relational consequences of a world in which people have become their own creators. You see, a world in which people can invent the truth is a world of lies. Become your own creator. Create your own truth. How many people are not doing that? All around us. And they're doing it precisely in order to control and take advance and run after all those ancient idols. A world in which people can invent their own truth is a world of lies. End of philosophy lesson. I want to promise you, you're not an accident. I want to promise you, you're not part of a cruel machine. And I want to promise you, you don't need to invent a better truth than Jesus. He comes to tell you that in your created being, creation recognizes its king. Creation knows. I'm not it. He's the one who gets the praise. You see, he's the creator who gives us meaning and purpose. And although I am a sinner whom Jesus came to save, and we'll see that as the weekend comes, even before that was even possible to think about, I had to realize that I am made by the God who comes to save. Hosanna, Hosanna, save me, God, save me. King, won't you come and rescue me? Let's pray together. In a world in which you create the truth, You have no truth. A world in which everyone can create their own truth is just a world of lies. And you're seeing it all around you. And I say this with tremendous respect. You might be a seeker. And you're not yet certain what you believe and why you believe. You may be even someone who says, this is not for me. I'd ask you to think about the assumptions of what you do believe. Because you don't just not believe. You believe something. You just don't believe this. What are the foundations of truth that you're building your life on?
Jesus comes. He comes humbly. He comes gently. He comes graciously. He comes mercifully. But he comes courageously and he comes truthfully to confront you with himself. Why do I believe? I believe because of Jesus. And because of him, I'm able to answer, what do I believe? Today, he would stand before you. And he'd ask you, why do you believe? What do you believe? Is it livable? Is it diable? Will it take you beyond life to meaning and purpose? And in that life, you will discover the things that you've wanted to put in my place, like relationships. And you'll discover the beauty of my creation. And you'll discover the wonder of love. But you don't get those things instead of me. You get those things because of me. Lord Jesus, forgive us for believing the lies. It says life is what we make it. Help us make you the center again. Or even for the very first time. So I'm going to leave it there because I want you to think about it. I don't want to put pressure on you or whatever, but at the same time, I really want to invite conversation, reflection, thinking, talking, engaging, opening Bibles together. And if you'd like to do that, you've got a trusted Christian friend that you can do that with, you can do that. Or if you'd like to sit with me, I'd love to sit with you. Look again at the person of Jesus and why we believe and what we believe. Thank you, worship team.